Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. Today's guest is Homera Kabir. Homera holds master's degrees in coaching psychology and positive psychology, the scientific study of human flourishing, from the University of East London, and she has over a decade of experience as a life coach. She's the founder and CEO of the Goodbye Perfect Project, which she launched with the mission to bring science-backed, soulful support to help people break free of unhelpful patterns and own their purpose, voice, and impact. She's been featured in Forbes, Appify, Thrive Global, The Huffington Post, and more. She's presented at TEDx on the topic of belonging and has facilitated workshops at positive psychology conferences and organizations such as Logitech, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Earth Justice, and more. And she's the author of the recently published Goodbye Perfect, How to Stop Pleasing, Proving, and Pushing for Others, and Live for Yourself. And this book was the top of our conversation today. It came out in April of this year. Nick, what did you most enjoy about this conversation? Yeah, I think Hamera did a really nice job of helping us to understand two really, really key terms, which are confidence on the one hand, perfectionism on the other, and the connections between the two. But more than that, kind of the foundations for both terms, right? The the implicit causes, the explicit causes. And you mentioned, you know, her work on belonging. I think it was just really interesting to consider how confidence and perfectionism on a conscious level can be very much about connection and ecosystem and environment, but also even on a subconscious level where we got into attachment styles and just, you know, personal histories and things like that. So really insightful. I thought it made a lot of sense and she gave some tangible takeaways that I think people could apply. How about you? I love the distinction she draws between fragile and optimal confidence and how we need to try to overcome fragile confidence to build optimal confidence, a method or a kind of a pathway towards not just overcoming perfectionism, but then flourishing. And I love the connection she drew between overcoming perfectionism and flourishing. It's a topic we've touched upon in various episodes, but not really dug in deep to. So it's great to dig in deep today. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Nick and I talking to Homera Kabir. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. There we go. So good evening. Yeah. Where are you joining us from? Currently located in Oman. It's next oh, to Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. In beautiful. Uh, so yeah. Good afternoon or good evening to you. Yeah. Good evening. It's 7 p.m. So not that late. Many yeah, of okay, my calls good. are like 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Yeah, so this is good. Beautiful. It's great to connect with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us late in the evening. It doesn't sound like it's late for you, but by your schedule. But thank you for yeah making time your evening for this. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Same here. America Beer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on Flourish FM. Really enjoyed reading your book, Goodbye Perfect. And it's been wonderful to learn that I, I have this advanced copy of the book ahead of this. Thank you. Real privilege to have a chance to read this. Thank you so much. So I want to dive right into your work on, on human flourishing. It's the, of course the theme of our podcast and you've explored and also promoted flourishing in so many ways in your life and work, which has taken you on a long and interesting journey from studying positive psychology, the scientific study of the conditions and processes that lead to human flourishing during graduate school, to researching confidence and self-actualization, to gaining a whole decade of experience as a life coach, to founding the Goodbye Perfect Project, which brings science-backed support to help people, particularly women, break free of unhelpful patterns and find their sense of purpose, to giving talks on belonging and human goodness around the world, including at TEDx, and to writing your recently published book, Goodbye Perfect, How to Stop Pleasing, Proving, and Pushing for Others and Live for Yourself, in which you write you've, quote, shared everything you've learned about the science of flourishing. So big question starts off here. What have you learned from your journey so far about what it means to flourish and what are some of your key ideas concerning flourishing? Thank you, John. Thank you, Nick. This is such a pleasure to be on the podcast. I really look forward to it because your topic, flourishing, is so close to my heart. As you know, I write in the book about you know my experiences with the eating disorder early on in my life and also about the decades I spent after that thinking that recovery would be, bring me fully back to life. but feeling that there was something missing. Yes, I was no longer unwell. Yes, I was living a great life. I had kids, married, job, all the rest of it. But they felt that there was something missing. And so when I found out about the science of positive psychology, the science of flourishing, I knew that I just had to 
begin studying it really to understand what was missing. And so my definition of flourishing in answer to your question is closely related to the research that I then did on confidence as part of my graduate studies, because I did not set out to study confidence. I set out to study women's flourishing. And it became clear to me that one of the key things that got in the way of flourishing was a certain kind of confidence that I call fragile confidence. And I'm sure we'll discuss that later. But that And so the definition of flourishing is, is influenced by that research, and it is about this state that has these four components in particular, a sense of inner safety, a sense of connectedness, a sense of purpose, and as a result of that, courageous action toward what we value. So it is what Paul Gilbert, Sir Paul Gilbert, who has done this amazing body of research on self-compassion. He's founded the Compassionate Mind Foundation in the UK. He calls it secure striving. That state of flourishing is secure striving. And he differentiates it with insecure striving, where we feel this stress and this anxiety and social comparison and shame and depression when things don't go our way. I just want to say really quickly, and I think we'll probably get into some of this and, and some other questions and topics, but I really love that idea of secure striving. That's not a term I'm familiar with. I don't know about you, John. That's the first time I'm hearing that, but I'm hearing tones of authenticity and self-concordance and intrinsic motivation and pa maybe passion in some cases. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it, but super interesting term. Yes, it is. It is very interesting. Secure striving and insecure striving. You really want to understand what it's all about. Exactly. Great. And I was quite taken, Homera, by the metaphor you used to describe flourishing. It's a fruit-bearing tree. And you go on to connect this with self-actualization, as as you mentioned, there is one of your areas of interest. Could you please describe that that metaphor for us? I mean, yes, I spoke about flourishing as a fruit-bearing tree simply because and the self-actualization, the the comparison there, because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs where, where, that we think about when we think of self-actualization, the highest form of self-actualization is self-transcendence, self when we can move beyond ourselves, when we are expressing ourselves fully, and now we can go beyond ourselves in service of something greater. And I think flourishing rep represents that because in flourishing, in the PERMA model, for example, in the classic definition of flourishing, we do have the meaning aspect. So as Martin Seligman, and I guess a lot of your listeners would, would be familiar with some of the work around flourishing. Mm -hmm. He found that just initially he spoke only about positive emotions and positive relationships and the sense of flow. And he found that without that sense of meaning and belonging to something larger than ourselves, it wasn't really the full definition of flourishing. And so flourishing has that fruit bearing tree because it's not only about yourself. It is not only about self-expression, but using that in a way that gives back to others, that lifts the lives of others, that creates a positive impact around us. And, and so for me, that fruit-bearing tree is, it gives fruit and that fruit benefits the people around them and then, you know, spreads and more trees grow and the rest of that. So that is how that analogy came in. So there's an interesting connection there because I hear fruit bearing tree and okay, so so this thing leads to this other thing, right? And that's in some ways how it seems you're drawing a relationship between confidence and we'll, we'll probably have a couple major themes today, confidence and perfectionism. But if we started with confidence, at one point you describe it as the wellspring of flourishing, right? So I'm starting to see what it sounds like is a sequencing, yeah. an ideal sort of sequencing. Yeah. Would you walk us through the connection between confidence, right? And it's different forms maybe, and flourishing that eventually can bear some of that fruit. Because it sounds like I hear secure striving, inner safety with confidence, self-esteem, the lower rungs yeah. of, of Maslow's hierarchy, if you will. So confidence is, well, first of all, confidence is, and this is a lot of my work around confidence, Confidence is influenced by the work of the late Michael Kernis, who has this entire body of literature around confidence, which is he describes it as a feeling, as an implicit feeling, a deep sense of trust that we have in two things in particular, that 
we're a good person. So that sense of self-worth and value that we have something value to offer, the two core needs of the human psyche, self-worth and something to be loved and to be seen for what we have, who we are. And then a sense of mastery, which is again, that implicit sense that we can deal with whatever comes in our way in the pursuit of something that is intrinsically rewarding. So it is a deep-seated sense that we have inside of us. And when we have that, then we can venture out, take risks, speak up for what we want. And that then comes back, develops into that extrinsic knowing that, yes, I'm loved, I'm liked, I'm a good person, and I can deal with whatever comes my way. So it becomes these feedback loops that help us grow and take action and the rest of it. Can we double click on the mastery piece first? I just want to make sure I understand this because it sounds yeah. like I'm hearing mm -hmm. elements of some of our listeners might know, like Carol Riff and psychological well-being, and she would call it environmental mastery. Like you mentioned, yes. you can handle what's coming at you. You have a sense yes. of coherence, yes. which is going to be associated with safety, those sorts of things. But I also heard like a, maybe a skill development mastery towards things that are autotelic, things you enjoy doing for their own sake. You mentioned flow earlier, which Sean and I have some experience yes. in, right? Yes. Is it, yes. am I understanding yes. that both of those kind of forms of mastery are what you're talking about in this context? Exactly, exactly. Okay. So it is things that you just inherit, you just love for the sake of doing them it's like this child and I think I give this example in the book I changed so many things in the book so many times that I don't even know what was in the final copy now but this child who's making sand, sand castles on the beach right and so they are so engrossed and so involved in in just the doing of it and you know they it is feedback is coming from the process of creating the sand castles they can tell oh I need more water now and I need more sand now so it's direct feedback that sense of flow and at the same time when things happen they just you know there's that environmental mastery as well it's not like they fall apart when a wave comes or something not a wave that washes everything away, but still there is that sense of being on top of things and being in control of things. That's what I was just going to say. It sounds like control or at the very least, the perception of capability. I'm capable of handling X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That resonates. Thank you. And that is also very different to that area specific, which is competence, right? Self-efficacy. I'm good at such and such a thing. Sure. And a lot, a lot of the times we, we kind of think that, okay, if I become good at this, if I get that extra qualification, if I become successful at such and such a thing, I'll become confident. Well, you become mm. competent, but not necessarily confident, right? Unless you have all these other things, all the implicit beliefs and all of that underpinning it. Is that bi-directional? I mean, I would wager that at doing some of those things, granted, they might yes. feel extrinsic, yes. but I would still think that there's probably a pathway whereby they do enhance confidence. And definitely. But then the other thing becomes that if you don't have the implicit to begin with, whatever feedback we get becomes a one-way kind of thing because, you know, our brain mm. just takes in confirmation bias, right? And a lot of that just doesn't go in. You would just say, oh, you know, but, you know, this was just because, okay, I can do this, but not really that. Oh, I just got a lot of help. Or I just, it was just luck. A lot of the things that then you kind of reject it, you don't take it in fully. So it doesn't really create that bi-directional thing. Yeah, there's there's a probably a secure level of confidence whereby I can take in criticism, feedback, acknowledge it because it's not all of me. It's just this slice from this person or this entity. And I know I have these capabilities, right? There's a little bit more kind of well-roundedness there. Not to the point of I'm so confident that I'm arrogant and I reject. Also, not to the point where I lack such confidence that I reject or can't take in or maybe even am, am overcome by the feedback and the yes. criticism, right? Yes. yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Exactly. 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 Thank you so much, Hamera. And I'm, I'm sure we'll return actually to the question of feedback a little bit more when we dig in deep to this distinction between fragile and optimal confidence, which is at the very core of your book. But before we do that, your book and your work as a coach focuses on building confidence for women. So could you please describe some of the key areas you focus on for building confidence in women in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I always focus on the implicit aspect as well. I mean, implicit aspect foremost, it is key, I find. And like you said, I mean, we keep going around this idea of fragile confidence. But at the same time, if there is, if we just build on the explicit and not the implicit, then there's just a gap between the explicit and the implicit. And that doesn't do us any favors. And that is where we talk about perfectionism and the rest of that. So I do work on the implicit. That is extremely important. But for women, There's also the work on the explicit because women, you may know it from the women in your lives, we have a very, we tend to have a very strong inner critic. And so we could take the actions that are needed to be taken, but then still not feel really good about them, criticize ourselves more than we need to, doubt ourselves. There's the imposter syndrome. Even when things go well, we kind of reject our successes doubt ourselves for all kinds of things that we don't need to doubt ourselves for. There's so much research around that in terms of workplace, jobs. Uh, Men would apply for a job if they meet 60% of the qualifications. Women, even after meeting 100% of them, they would downplay their qualifications and the rest of it. So there's work that needs to be done around that because all of that stops us, keeps us from taking risks. And so there is work that I do around speaking up. How do you speak up? Techniques that you need to speak up to build courage building, risk taking. So yes, there's the implicit, but there's there's also the external work that needs to be done in order to take the risks that then will feed back into the implicit with a little bit of help. Great. Thank you, Homera. And some of your work focuses on women in leadership roles and building confidence for women in leadership roles. Could you please describe how your work and your coaching focuses on women in leadership? Yeah, because it's a little bit different as we do, obviously, all the work that I've been speaking about, but for women in leadership in particular, as women rise in leadership, they face a couple of challenges that come with seniority. In particular, there's the double bind of competence and likability that a lot of women face, which is basically if you're competent, you're sometimes seen as aggressive, as brash, if you put your ideas forward strongly. If you're likable, you're seen as being too nice and held back as a result. So either way, you're held back. So it is a difficult situation to be in. And for women who are hooked onto praise, who need that praise, who need that approval, which a lot of women do, then it can become really difficult to then advance. So a lot of the work is around unhooking from praise, unhooking from criticism. It is about delegation. It is about letting go of control. It is about learning to focus on the big picture because sometimes we can get caught in that perfectionism, proving, proving ourselves in jobs we've already earned. And so it is about focusing on the big picture and what is important important is is about asking for help again something that we can struggle with it is about allyship about lifting other women as we rise because that is a very important part of women's empowerment work i think so those are some of the areas that we focus on jumping ahead here just a little bit but i still think pretty natural now my head is trying to tie together confidence right what you just described some of that imposter syndrome pieces and perfectionism. And what this is probably a a subcomponent, but just sort of, you know, the evidence for context, I have a client right now, Amira, that, you know, I think is struggling with, in this case, maybe adaptive, you know, perfectionism, but young woman, really, really high achieving, probably your classic case that, you know, I think you write about a lot. And she could not be more high achieving yet seems to be riddled with this like vicious cycle of doubt, high achievement and striving for more. And I'm just wondering where confidence fits into that equation and how those two kind of interact. Yeah, uh, that is a great question. Because the thing is that sometimes perfectionism is needed, right? Sometimes sometimes we, we just held against high bars. Sometimes it is just a desire to, you just love something so much, you just want to do it really, really well. So it is, you know, that excellence piece of it as well, especially for high achieving women, like, you know, you're capable of more, you want to do more, it brings you a sense of inherent joy. I think where it gets problematic is when you can't discern what really needs to be perfect and what is good enough at good enough. Like, you know, this is good enough at 60%. This is good enough at 80%. And this actually needs my 100% for whatever reason, because I just love this or because this is what's needed in my work or this is what will get me a reward that I actually value. So 
a lot of the times for people who have fragile confidence, that discernment piece of it is really difficult because it's a reflection on their global self-worth. You don't do, you cannot compartmentalize things that well. So if you aren't perfect overall, then it's a reflection on who you are as a person. Thank you. And you just use the term fragile competence, which is where we were going to go. So it's all coming together now. So you just distinguish for our listeners the difference between fragile and optimal confidence, which it sounds like is going to have some some parallels with terms we've used so far in this conversation. Yes, yes. I mean, the key difference between the two is that in fragile confidence, our implicit beliefs, so we spoke about the implicit, that those implicit beliefs are not what they need to be to have optimal confidence. So that sense of belonging, that sense of deep sense of I'm a good person, I'm worthy for who I am, is not there. I mean, you know, not there, meaning it's a spectrum, right? So it could be there, it could be there to some degree, not there to other degrees. And that sense of mastery is also not there. Like, you know, again, I can deal with whatever comes my way. But the explicit beliefs are both Great. I mean, which is why both fragile confidence and optimal confidence, both are forms of high confidence. They can look similar on the outside. They can look similar on the outside. But it is that deep down belief. And sometimes that deep down belief is not known to us, especially in fragile confidence. It's not known to us. In low confidence, the implicit and the explicit thoughts that we have are pretty similar. But in fragile confidence, the implicit can be embedded deep inside. In fact, for some people, for especially for people who keep keep getting praise and who keep experiencing success, there can be a wide gap between their implicit beliefs and their explicit knowing. And when that gap is really, really wide, it can look like narcissistic behaviors. It can look like carrying on in the world with an entitled sense of I'm entitled to whatever. It can come across as even thinking you're more competent than you really are and putting Mm. ourselves down and others down and not believing that they are actually as competent as they are. So there is all of those things that can happen when that deep-seated sense, implicit sense, and that explicit knowing when there's a wide gap between the two. What are some of the contributors to that sort of implicit and explicit? Like the simple question is why, right? Because so, so everything you said makes sense. And it's interesting to think about this like spectrum, right? Sort of these opposite ends. And I keep thinking, so I mentioned a client, you know, I've had a lot of students in the past, typically young women who all the evidence, at least explicitly, if I'm using the terminology correctly, suggests to them that they should have nothing but confidence, right? And really low levels of fear, anxiety, or panic, or all the things that seem to be associated with perfectionism, yet they do right? They have those things in spades, despite the evidence to the contrary. Why? What contributes to that implicit growth or not, or the explicit growth or not? Yeah, yeah. To your point, you're talking about women, and I will also work with women. And yes, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this, Nick. You tell them, but you know, you have, you are qualified, but you know, you've done this before. And they say, right. yes, I know. Right. So there's nothing absent there, but that knowing it doesn't. Yeah. But deep inside somewhere, they can't even say it. I mean, you say maybe in deep inside, you don't believe it. And they'll say, I don't know, because Mm. that is inaccessible to conscious thought. The thing is that these are what that is why I talk a lot about attachment style. I talk about a lot about early experiences. Because what happens in those very early experiences is implicit. It it rests somewhere deep inside of us. It's in our core beliefs. It's in our body, however you want to say it. But it is before the brain develops the ability to make sense of things, right? So it is stored somewhere. And that is kind of the implicit knowing. That is kind of, you know, just a feeling. Right. And so trying to understand, and it is not only attachment style, it is not only the experiences we have with our caregivers, there's so much else that goes in there, any traumatic event, any major challenges that we faced, any recurring challenges that we faced, so many things that go on in the implicit world. And so what really helps understand that is not trying to dig out, okay, let me see what my core belief says, because we really can't do that. There are studies to show that a lot of harm is done when we try to 
force core beliefs. But what helps is just understanding our past, doing something like, you know, something like a life review, I sometimes say, just understand what's happened in my life, what were kind of the experiences that I had growing up, what were the other major contributors to my life, and then also look at your behaviors, how may have they have led to these behaviors, how would these behaviors have protected me or helped me at that time, and then see, okay, if these behaviors point to these kinds of beliefs that I carry, which is why I talk about attachment styles and the beliefs that are aligned with them, because your behaviors can help you connect to your beliefs. And that's how you can understand whether your beliefs or implicit beliefs are helping you or hindering you. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. I want to let John jump back in here. I'll make a quick comment. It's interesting. You brought up attachment styles a couple of times. I've got, again, a, a different client writing a book right now called The Secure Leader on attachment styles and leadership. And she made the argument to me the other day when we were talking through some research that she really thinks like that's the starting point. Everything else is really built upon that. And I hear a similar theme and sort of what you're suggesting here, even around perfectionism, even, even at an unconscious or subconscious level. Yes, I totally believe that. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of that. I just believe that, yes, they are there. I mean, you know, we can deny it, we can do whatever, but people do carry those behaviors. Sometimes they don't make sense to them themselves. Sometimes they're desperate to let go of them, but there's something that continues driving those behaviors and they can keep showing up in different ways and they can shift from one area of our lives to another area of our lives, but we still need those behaviors in some way or the other. Great. Thank you so much, Homera. So well, we should also recommend to listeners another episode we had that went in quite deep on attachment styles. Marisa G. Franco, we had an episode on friendship, the science of friendship and flourishing, and she engaged in quite a careful analysis of attachment styles and how those relate to a person's capacity to, to form friendships. That's an excellent book. Now, on this distinction between fragile and optimal competence, then let's move from the kind of the theory to the practice. So it's optimal confidence and building that seems to be a key area of focus in your work and in your book. So what are some strategies for building optimal confidence and overcoming fragile confidence, or as it were, moving from fragile to optimal confidence? Yeah, great question, John. And so a lot of the work is about the implicit beliefs, right? Because we can have all these hacks in place. We can try all these things. I mean, you know, people have been trying all these things. How do I let go of pleasing? How do I become less of a pleaser? How do I let go of control? How do I let go of perfectionism? Because we know many times that they're getting in our way, but they're not lasting. I mean, yes, they can work in some in one place and not in the other, etc. So developing those implicit beliefs is really important because then it lets go of the need to keep ourselves safe through these behaviors, right? When you develop this inherent sense that you're valuable and worthy as you are, that you have what it takes to face whatever comes your way, you don't need all these behaviors to protect you. So that is a key part of it. 
But then at the same time, I always say that it doesn't end there because we have become so dependent on these behaviors that as a result, we haven't grown certain other qualities, strategies, ways of being, behaving, doing that would help us, right? If you become dependent on something, you don't develop other aspects. So these become our areas of growth. So for example, if you're a pleaser, Yes, you need to develop that inherent sense of self-worth, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't make you feel inferior in a relationship and all of that. But then at the same time, to break out of this pattern of pleasing, you also have to recognize what are my areas of growth. I never learned to set boundaries, for example. So how do I learn to set boundaries? How do I learn to communicate those boundaries in a way that people understand, be clear in what I'm asking for? How do I learn to maintain those boundaries? Because people will forget. How do I remind them? How do I reward them for having done what I wanted them to do? How do I deal with the emotional angst that may result from me not being the pleaser that I'm itching to be or that I'm so dependent on being? So these are all areas of growth. So it's not just that, okay, you build the implicit sense and now everything will be awesome. No, because you've depended on these behaviors for so long, you will have areas of growth. And so this becomes what structures are you going to set in place in your life to be able to help you do that. So those are some of the things, yeah, that we do. It could it could be any behavior. It could be if you are if you've just gotten used to being, you know, showing that I'm strong and I'm independent and I don't need other people in my life, not asking for help, not doing all of those. You need to learn how to do that. You need to learn how to do that while feeling uneasy about it. So you need to set structures in place to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So are these examples you've given there, Homera, of getting to that implicit sense of the views we have about our own worth and capabilities? So I'm, I'm just trying to see how we can access these areas that are hidden from conscious awareness. Yeah. And you emphasize in your book the importance of self-knowledge and self-understanding for building confidence and for ultimately flourishing. And it sounds like the pathway towards growth you described then is about accessing these things which we tend to be consciously unaware of, but are maybe ingrained behaviors that we have that we gradually understand, but, oh, that's that's one of the reasons I do that or that contributes to my behavior there. Are these examples, and can you say a bit about how we can access these implicit beliefs we have that aren't in our conscious awareness? Yeah, so like I was saying a little earlier, it's about understanding, you know, why do I behave the way I do? So doing that analysis, trying to understand, okay, this is these were some of the early experiences that I had. These were some of the later experiences that I had. Okay, how did these behaviors help me through that? And then seeing what kind of beliefs these behaviors point to. That is kind of what I write in the book, right? What are so behaviors like, for example, pleasing point to a belief that you are less worthy than the other person. Behaviors like, oh, I'm independent or I'm strong point to a belief that I'm great, I'm superior, although below that is the belief that I'm not worthy. So once once we know our behaviors, we can see, okay, what are the beliefs here? And then we can at least distance ourselves from the behaviors. We can at least distance ourselves from the way we are acting and at the same time, believe, develop more empowering beliefs. So it is like this dual work, you know, we have, we see this dual work all the time in habit formation. What am I going to let go of? What am I going to build? We see it in functional medicine, for example, what am I going to let go of? What am I going to include? So it is about identifying where do these come from so that we can distance ourselves from them. And then at the same time, doing the work of building the ones that help us, which is that sense of goodness and worth and value and that sense of mastery by engaging in things that are inherently intrinsically rewarding to us that help us may feel authentic that help us feel purposeful thank you Hamira. so we have looked a bit well we've discussed this conversation so far the connection between confidence and perfectionism but it'd be great to get on the table a definition of perfectionism and clarify why exactly this is a hindrance to flourishing so the title of your book is Goodbye Perfect, and you founded the Goodbye Perfect Project. And actually, it'd be good for you to say a bit about that in the, your answer yeah. to this question. How would you define perfectionism, and why would you say it's a hindrance to flourishing? Yeah, so that, again, is a great question. Perfectionism, I would define it as self-protective behaviors. 
Perfectionism, I, and I write in the book, I call it the six masks. Perfectionism can show up in many ways. There are different ways it shows up. But at the end, end of the day, all of those behaviors are about trying to hide a perceived inadequacy or unworthiness. Perceived, obviously, because we're all worthy and we've all got something valuable to offer the world each in our own way. But because of those experiences that we had, we developed these beliefs implicit beliefs that somehow we're not worthy, somehow we are inadequate, somehow there's something lacking. And so perfectionism and all the different ways that it shows up is about hiding that brokenness, inadequacy, lack, unworthiness, whatever it is, by all these different masks, by doing these things that make us come across as lovable, likable, valuable in the world. So I keep coming back to all this makes sense. I can see a lot of the synergy with it. The definitions make sense. What do you do about it? How do you tackle it? You're one of our listeners. You're adult, young person, college student, doesn't matter, right? You're dealing with this nasty cycle of, you know, on some implicit level, I don't feel like I'm enough. So sort of on this explicit level, I do these things, I seek this validation, right? How do you cut into that cycle? You've given, I think, dropped a few hints here and there, but like if you're just trying to sit down and really formally tackle, you know you've got this issue, where might you suggest somebody get started? Okay, so that is this journey that I talk about, yeah, the journey okay. of growth, okay. the journey of confidence. And it always begins with feelings of self-worth. This journey is actually a bottom-up journey because belonging, remember I spoke about confidence and the model of confidence. It is the two components of belonging and mastery. Belonging always comes before mastery. And implicit leads to explicit. And then, yes, the feedback loops that you, you, you spoke about, Nick, but it begins with the implicit. It cannot begin with the explicit because if the implicit is not aligned with it, it wouldn't sink in, right? So, and belonging comes before mastery. So given that implicit comes before explicit and belonging comes before mastery, there are there, there is this, this pyramid almost that you follow at the bottom of which is feelings of self-worth. So those deep-seated feelings of goodness followed by a sense of connection, so give and take in relationships, a sense of equalness in relationships, power balance in relationships. And then what follows is that sense of purpose. So really understanding who am I? How do I work well? What brings me a sense of joy? What are my strengths? And really own them. What is the sense of purpose that I have in life? And engage with that. And then finally comes this courageous action, which is about now moving out into the world and taking actions, which builds that explicit sense of mastery. So it is implicit sense of belonging, followed by explicit sense of belonging, followed by implicit sense of mastery, followed by explicit sense of mastery. All of this needs to happen layer by layer by layer. So we begin there. But again, you know, life is like everything is now mixed together. It becomes like a soup. It's not like all compartmentalized. Sure. But all we begin with that in a sense of self-worth for women in particular, identifying our the voice in our heads that says a lot because in a good way or a bad way, whatever you want to call it, our explicit points to our implicit. The voice in our heads points to what we deep down believe about ourselves, which is not a terrible thing after all, because then we can work with it. If we don't even know, if your voice just says, and again, if you if you coach Nick, like you said, you would know that some people who just carry this great sense of, hey, I'm great and everybody else is wrong and just blame everybody for what goes wrong in their lives. It's very difficult to work with that. Mm. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's interesting as you're laying this out and that helps creating that sequencing. And I can see even underneath that implicit belonging, the attachment style, the attachment history, right? As kind of a precursor to that. All of it reminds me of, you mentioned Maslow a couple of times in our third episode we had on Scott Barry Kaufman, whose work I'm sure, I'm sure you're yes. aware of. And in Transcend, really when he helpful. walks through kind of this, this restructuring of Maslow and he talks a lot about meaning and purpose, which you've mentioned a couple of times, one of the words he uses to describe the research on meaning is mattering. And everything you're talking yes. about here sounds to me like a person's 
strive, right, or, or drive to matter in some way, shape, or form, which really anchors home, I think, that piece of belonging. Like, you, we always say you don't thrive or flourish in a vacuum. You're a context, you're a part of relationships. And so part of, I guess, what I'm pulling out here is that even though perfectionism probably feels really personal, it seems to really come from connections or lack thereof in some cases. Yes, and I love what you said about mattering because, you know, how the brain makes sense of the self is never in isolation. I mean, we are, Antonio Damasio's work, we are, we exist in relation to the people and places around us and the way I make sense of place. And it is also based on how core beliefs are formed in the brain. There is the self in relation to other people, in relation to life itself, right? Our place in the world that need to know that we matter. What are we here to do? What is our sense of purpose? So that is really, really important in knowing that I'm here with something to do in the world. And that is what helps us keep going, even when things don't go our way, because it is not just about ourselves anymore. It is what we're supposed to do here. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Hamera. I've got to say your book resonated with me on quite a personal level because I am, as as Nick will point out, happily, <laughs> I'm a, a severe perfectionist. And actually, Nick makes me realize how much of a perfectionist I am. Because I'm so imperfect. That's what he's saying, Amir. Yeah, my imperfection <laughs> helps, you know, create a standard for him. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why you two work so great together because it balances out in the end. Yeah, good. Yeah, yin and yang. Yeah. But I mean, I had a moment reading a lovely morning, actually, I was in a cafe in Athens reading reading the galley of your book, which I proudly have here, uh, which I hope you'll sign for me one day. There's a passage where you write about perfectionism and our conscious negative beliefs. You write the reasons for having some behaviors that exhibit fragile confidence are among the reasons why most of us stay up at night perfecting a presentation that's already great. And I kind of underlined this because I've lost count of the number of times I've stayed up all night yeah. to a presentation that was already done, ready, ready to go, rehearsed. I was like, no, it's not quite good enough. I've got to do yeah. that. That connects. That's going to bring, I'm going to bring this anecdote onto an actual question here. Connecting with what Nick just said about connection with others and perfectionism, because this also has the level of connecting with yourself, right? And, and you write in your book, we move close to flourishing where we're brought face to face with ourselves but that when we don't have a way of connecting with ourselves, that we languish. Okay, yeah. so self-connection, self-knowledge, self-understanding is a really important aspects of this. And I hope connect with what Nick was saying that about connection. And that's, you know, for me, this was a kind of a, a way of being brought face to face with myself when I read this passage. But like, wow, okay, this this is something I really do. And I can definitely relate to that. But so could you please describe what it means to connect with ourselves in a way that supports rather than hinders flourishing? And what it would be to connect with yourself or not connect with yourself in a way that would risk you languishing? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, for this, I was kind of influenced by the work of Lisa Miller. And I think you had her on the show as we well, did. right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Big fan of Lisa. Yeah. Exactly. And she talks about, you know, moments of transition, right? And transition could be anything. You just realize for you, for example, Joan, just reading that passage would be like, you know, oh, yeah. This could be a moment of transition. You could transition into something different if this is holding you back. So, I think it's, again, it's about, I think we arrive at these moments in life where we suddenly come to the realization that something is not working. And that is when we need to do, I think, what I call the work of emotional repair, which is about really understanding why do these behaviors exist? How did they help us at a certain time? How are they not helping us now? So for example, what are they stopping us from doing? When I say yes to staying up all night, what am I saying no to? You know, really understanding that and doing the emotional repair work, which is having so much compassion for that part of you that started doing those behaviors for whatever reason. Emotional repair work is everything. It is the work around self-compassion. It is the work around forgiveness, resentment. It is the work around apologies. It is so much that goes into that emotional repair work because all of that is tied to that sense of lacking that sense of lack, inadequacy, unworthiness. But I think another key aspect of this thing about the that inner work that you, you were just asking about, it is also understanding what have I said yes to in my life, the decisions that I've 
the the moments that I've faced in my life, what have I said yes to for very real reasons? I mean, for women, for example, you go through so many transitions, we go through so many transitions in our lives. So many women decide to stay home, for example, for their kids. And so they they said yes to a huge thing in their lives, which was very important for them for an aspect to live, fully live one aspect of their life. But as a result of that, they said no to another aspect of their lives. And so when we arrive at these moments of transition, it's good to ask yourself, what have I said yes to? What parts of my life have been unlived as a result? And then say, okay, what is the longing now? And maybe this is the work that I'm being called to do now. So every time we arrive at these, these are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves to come closer to who we are. And when we don't do that, then obviously we just move further away because then the world tells us this is what you should be doing and this is where we should be going. And when we don't have an inner compass, then obviously it can even further away. Are those pathways to, I guess, the distinction between adaptive or maladaptive perfectionism? Can those sort of flip the switch, so to speak, is like how you respond with self-compassion and that inner narrative? Because... John was appreciate the vulnerability from John and talking about some of his struggles with his own perfectionism. And I've told him this multiple times before, and you can see this, like there's a lot of strengths in some perfectionist tendencies, right? Like there's a real adaptive component that can be a heck of a thing to wield, right? It's just, there's that maladaptive yeah. side as well. And I'm just curious, some of those things you laid out, are those some of the causal mechanisms, if you will, Maybe it's not that simplistic, right? Something like adaptive and maladaptive. But I'm just curious, you know, have you have you dug into some of those distinctions and different pathways to adaptive or maladaptive perfectionism? I talk a lot about really identifying even with all of these perfectionist tendencies that we have, whether it's pleasing, perfection, and all mm -hmm. these different forms about also seeing what has it given me as a result. Because right. these are areas of our life that we've honed over decades, right? That we've really gotten good at them. So staying up all night perhaps has taught us a lot of mm. self-discipline. Mm. It has taught us so many things. So really about seeing what, what have I learned as a result? What have I gained as a result? What strengths have I developed as a result? And how can I use them in a more helpful way, right? So perhaps use that self-discipline to now shut down the work and actually go to sleep. <laughs> we can, but when we just reject it, you know, completely, I'm a perfectionist and I will no longer be, then there's no path of, for growth there, right? We haven't taken anything. We haven't taken any learning from there and there's nothing we can use from that to grow. That sounds like a, a pretty clear distinction between like cognitive behavioral technique and acceptance commitment. There's one is like push this away, right? It's a problem. I don't want it here. And the other is yeah. just put it in my lap. So I'm, I'm just going to function with it, but move forward in values aligned ways despite it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I thought, and again, my work is so influenced by the work of Paul Gilbert and his explanation that when we begin with self-compassion, when we begin with acceptance and understanding and embracing, everything changes because he talks about, you know, the autonomic nervous system, there's a sympathetic arm and there's the parasympathetic arm. But then he says, when we come back to the parasympathetic arm, when we come back to that calm and centered place, then we can engage the drive mode of the sympathetic arm versus the fear mode of the sympathetic right. arm because we need the sympathetic arm to take action right but there's a drive mode and there's a fear mode and when we can accept when we can embrace when we can be okay with everything whether it's that behavior whether it is what happened to us whatever it is then we can just engage that from a much wider perspective from mm. values take values based actions realize what is important here what do i need to do is it aligned with what i really want and move toward that that sounds very much like act yeah that makes a lot of sense thank you awesome thank you so much pamera for this wonderful conversation now as you know we have this signature question at the end of our episodes, it's our flourishing question. What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? Yeah, the one lesson, and I'll I'll try to find a less soft and woo-woo way of saying it, but I mean, it's really fall in love with yourself. 
I mean, own yourself, own yourself. Because the thing is, there are so few things that we can control in life, right? We've been given this body, we've been given these these emotions, we've been given these friends, gifts, whatever we are, we didn't choose them. I mean, the best we can really do is embrace all of it, right? Take in all of it, find pride in all of it, stop walking around like being an apology for everything that we, who we are, what we have. I mean, you know, and that apology doesn't always show up in self-deprecating ways. It can also show up in some self-entitled ways, right? So really take it all in, embrace all of it, have a healthy sense of ego so that we can actually improve what needs to be improved. That is the place to begin. So own all of it, really get to understand it, experiment with it, explore it. And a practical way would just be, I mean, identify the voice in your head. I mean, you know, that voice in your head, whether it is critical, whether it is pushy. I mean, you know, it could be for a lot of perfectionists, it's just a pushy voice. Like we need to do more of this, just a little bit more of that. I mean, you know, that, did you see that font that really isn't as good as it could be, whatever it is. So whether it's pushy, whether it is critical, whether it is an advisor. I mean, a lot of the times the inner critic also shows up as an advisor. So get familiar with that voice, so that every time it shows up, you can bring some compassionate awareness around it, you can distance from it, and you can then take action with that's aligned with what you want. Yeah, great. Thank you, Anara. Listen, we'd love for our listeners to become more exposed to you and your work. Just talk a little bit more about the book, where can they find it, the project, and, and how else can they connect with you, whether that be on social media, your website, or whatever you got. Yeah, so my website is, I guess, the place to go. My website, humairakabi.com. It's got everything. They can sign up for my newsletters. It's got the podcast. It's got social media links. It's got the book. You can get the book and everything else all around the work around the project, which I'm actually really looking forward to expanding and building a community once the book launches over and really bringing a more of a compassionate approach to self-improvement and not so much a fix me approach, but more a compassionate approach to it. Beautiful. Beautiful. We'll direct our listeners to the, the website then. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We're, we're deeply appreciative of both the time and your expertise. Thank you, Nick and John. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Mary. I love your answer to our flourishing question. Fall in love with yourself. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.